John Hammond was very proud of himself. He and his team had accomplished something that had never been done before. They had very skillfully bioengineered dinosaurs. Well, dinosaurs are extinct. They're long since gone. Somehow he pulled it off. And he decided that he was going to bring together a team of experts that were going to go see this park where he had these dinosaurs because he needed their blessing in order to encourage the marketplace to invest in what he was doing so he could continue this good work. There was a certain person that was invited, Dr. Ian Malcolm, who was a mathematician. And uh, they had a very spirited debate about the propriety of what Dr. Hammond and his team had been doing. And Dr. Malcolm made the point, look, you, you stand on the shoulders of greatness, but you didn't earn this knowledge. Your team didn't earn this knowledge. They don't respect the knowledge. They don't respect the power of DNA. And what you have done is you've rushed out and you have patented this and you have put this in marketing and slapped it on lunch boxes and without even thinking about what you have done. And of course, you might imagine Dr. Hammond was offended. He said, now wait a minute, now you're not giving us due credit. Our scientists have done things that have never been done before. And Dr. Malcolm said, yes. And they were so preoccupied with whether they could, they didn't think whether they should. I love that line. That's from Jurassic Park. And let me say, because you always have to issue this disclaimer, it's been years since I've seen that movie. I'm not endorsing everything in the movie. I'm not endorsing the evolutionary time. But I like that particular phrase in that exchange. Your men were so preoccupied with whether they could, they forgot to think whether they should. I think that is the essence of wisdom. Because what, what is Dr. Malcolm saying? Dr. Malcolm is saying that, yes, you were so focused on the technology and the ability and the understanding and the knowledge, but you did not step back and ask, should we be doing this? Is this in the interest of the public? Is this in the interest of the general welfare? Is this in the interest of the health of our society? You forgot to ask those questions because you were too focused on, can we do it? And I want to suggest to you that that is the essence of wisdom. That question, what should we do? I had an opportunity years ago to talk to a group of lawyers about the discovery process. The discovery process is how one goes about discovering, as the name implies, information about a case. And there are several ways you can do that. You can serve some written questions on the parties, which are called interrogatories. You can serve some document requests asking for certain documents to be produced. You can have subpoenas, which are court orders for certain information and certain documents from non-parties to be produced. You can take depositions where you question witnesses under oath. You can send investigators out to scour the countryside to find the information you're looking for. And there are too many lawyers that when they get in that situation, they just start doing stuff because they can. And they never think, should I do this? Should I propound these interrogatories? Should I serve these document requests? Which witnesses? What are the optics of that? And so this essence of the question of wisdom, which is what we're going to talk about tonight, walking in wisdom, has a lot to do with the question of what should I do? Not what can I do, but what should I do? And when we say wisdom, let me say this, we are talking about wisdom from above. I understand James 3.15, that there is another kind of wisdom that James says is earthly and sensual and 
demonic. We're not talking about that tonight. We're talking about wisdom from above because th there are people in this world who think they're very wise. I was driving around yesterday, we were running some errands and had NPR on, and they were having a program where they were talking to a family where the mother had transitioned to a man. And she was in the process of doing it, and they were asking questions and asking the children what they felt about that. And this court, they had done the story initially and kind of came back and were talking to everybody after the transition had taken place. And, and as I was listening to this conversation, listening to the, the talking, I, I was reminded when I was a senior in high school, I wrote a paper on a book by Alan Patton called Cry of the Beloved Country. And, uh, you know, I waited to the last minute like most kids do. Uh, that's not an endorsement of that approach. I'm just saying most kids do that. Uh, and I turned the paper in. And uh, Mrs. Beverly, I remember her, Mona Beverly, senior English teacher, she wrote on the paper, you said nothing, but you said it well. Hey, I was a mercenary, so you can cut me down if you want to. You, got, you gave me the A, I, I don't care. Yeah, I'm the say nothing well guy. That's what I thought about when I heard NPR. It's the say nothing well crowd. I mean, they sounded erudite, they sounded smart, and they were using big words, and it just seemed wonderful until you started thinking about it. And you said, they said nothing. And they said nothing because the beginning of wisdom, Proverbs 1, 7, let's turn over there. The beginning of wisdom starts with the fear of the Lord. All throughout that discussion, there was not a single suggestion of what God thinks about this. No, no one questioned, no one asked, no one even uttered the Word of God. It was a bunch of noise because the beginning of wisdom truly starts with the fear of the Lord. Proverbs 1, 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. If you don't start with that attitude, if you don't start with that disposition, if you don't start with that, 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 that heart of fearing the Lord, then you don't have wisdom. I don't care how fancy it sounds and looks and you package it up and dress it up. It's not because he says this is the beginning. This is how you get started. You want to go down this path of wisdom. Again, the sermon title, Walking in Wisdom. If you want to start that, it begins with this attitude. You cannot bypass that. The fear of the Lord. Now, let's say uh, just a quick little detour on that because I, I know when we talk about the fear of the Lord, and that's our theme for the year, there's a lot of interesting discussion about that, sometimes a little controversy because we're, we're struggling. We're struggling with how do we reconcile the fact that we're to fear the Lord and we're to love the Lord. And we know that we have to do both. And I think Steve Ramsey did an outstanding job of that. One of the passages he pointed to, Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 through 13. Let's turn over there. Deuteronomy, the 10th chapter, verses 10 through 13. Deuteronomy 10, 12 through 13. The Bible says this, now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, and to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and to keep commandments of the Lord and His statutes, which I command you today for your good. And so, we're told to both fear the Lord and to love the Lord. And if the Lord told us to do that, obviously we can. Now, it, it, people struggle sometimes. And, and we say, well, how do we reconcile that? And however we reconcile, we've got to be careful because sometimes, and Steve pointed this out, there is a temptation 
to kind of interpret that fear of the Lord in a way that, you know, it's, it's just reverence and that's all. There's no sense of punishment. There's no being scared or, or worried about anything in any way. And yet I want to direct you to Matthew chapter 10, verses 27 through 28. And I want you to listen to this real quick. Matthew chapter 10, verses 27 through 28. Talking about the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom according to Proverbs 1-7. Matthew 10, 27, 28. Now, this is Jesus talking. He says, Whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light, and what you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops. Listen to verse 28. And do not fear those who kill the body that cannot kill the soul, but cannot kill the soul. But rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. So, that, on that occasion, the audience is told, You fear the Lord, because he can destroy both body and soul in hell. Now, who is he talking to? Is he talking to people of the world? What was he talking to just random disciples? You go back in the beginning of chapter 10, he's talking to his hand-picked apostles. And he tells them, you need to fear God because of what he can do. And that's not inconsistent with them also loving God. It made all the sense in the world. Why? They're about to go out and teach and preach the gospel, right? They're going to preach the message, and they're going to be hounded by the authorities. The Jewish authorities, sometimes the Roman authorities, and so he's saying, don't worry about what kind of blowback you get. Don't worry about the punishment from the governing authorities, because what you really need to worry about, if you ever get uh, worried about preaching and teaching the truth, if it ever has a chilling effect, if you're deterred, you, you know you need to say it, but you don't want to, you don't want to land in jail. He says, I want you to think about something. I want you to think about God who can destroy both body and soul in hell. That's the one you need to fear. Don't worry about these guys. And that was appropriate. For the Lord to motivate His apostles with the idea of, this is a God you don't want to disappoint. This is a God you don't want to make angry. And this is the God whose will you want to do. I don't think it's hard for us to understand that, or shouldn't be. When I think about it, I think about my father. I love my father. And as a child, I loved my father. But I also feared my father. <laughs> Because my father was old school, and my father believed in the belt. Y'all don't know what that means anymore. They've kind of written that out. They don't do that stuff anymore. But I got wore out many a time, many a time. I'm talking about not spankings, whoopings. There's a difference. Just wore out. I mean, one time we had this massive test of wills. He was just wailing on me, and I'm determined that I'm not going to cry, and veins are popping out, and sweat's going, and it's who's going to win this thing. Don't do that. It's not very smart. I told Dad later, I said, you know, I won some of those arguments on the, on the merits, but I learned a valuable lesson as a child. The Trump, I mean, the belt trumps logic every time. Every time. But the point I want to make is I remember one time I was 16. We lived in a two-story house. And I don't know what it is we'd gotten crossways on. But we'd gotten upset. And I was in the wrong, I'm sure. I'm a child. But I was standing toe-to-toe -to -toe with my dad on a landing in between the first and second floor. And I was taller than him. I was bigger than him. Had more muscles than he was, or he had. And we were both angry, just looking at each other. Like the old West, you know, good, bad, and the ugly, you know, that stuff. But I was scared to death of that man. Because I'm telling you, he, he grew up differently than I did. He grew up on the streets. There's some stuff he knows that I'd want to test that. But never in all of that, never in my anger, never in being upset, did I stop loving my father. I always loved him, and I was able to fear him at the same time. We can walk and chew gum at the same time. 
But if you're still a skeptic, let me, let me go about it this way. Men. Married men. Husbands. Now let me give you some advice. Don't say amen about what I'm about to say. Don't jab your wife. Keep your eyes up here. Look at me. I'm going to keep you off the couch. But I have been told by married men, some of whom are Christian married men, some of whom may, may be hypothetically may be here. It's easy for me to do this. Jacqueline's not here. Uh, that, that, that's in your sweet, loving wives, who from our perspective could never say a cross word, have another side to them. And you have been privy to this other side. You have seen this other side. You have witnessed this side. You have been on the receiving end of this other side. And yes, be honest, put the male ego aside, you are terrified by that other side. You're scared of it. But never when a man has told me that did I say, well, you don't love your wife. You don't love your wife. No, you love your wife. You care for her. You dote on her. You cherish her. But you do not want to make her upset in certain ways. And so there's certain things you avoid or you try as much as you can. And you don't want to make her upset because of the consequences you fear will happen. We can love and we can fear the same being. But that's a detour. Walking in wisdom. Let's first define what is wisdom. And, and typically when we talk about this, we'll say something like it's uh, the, the application, the practical application of knowledge to facts or the skill for a proper application of learning to different scenarios and different circumstances. And, and that's good as far as it goes. But let me direct your attention to Proverbs chapter 9 and verse 10. Proverbs chapter 9 and verse 10. We're asking what is wisdom? What is wisdom? Proverbs chapter 9 and verse 10 says this. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. There it is. The wisdom we're talking about, the understanding, to know God, to know the Holy One. You start with the fear of the Lord, but he says further and says, the understanding of God, to know the Holy One. If I know God, I know who He is, I know His will, I know everything about Him that's been revealed. He says, now that's true understanding. Because think about it, if we truly know God, if we truly know who He is, and we know what He's done, and we know what He's promised, what is the rational response to that knowledge? It's Romans 12, 1 through 2, right? To submit your entire bodies as a living sacrifice to Him. Some versions will say that is your reasonable service. Some versions say rational service. The only rational response to knowing this transcendent God is to get down on your knees and pledge your entire existence to Him. That's the only natural, or it should be the only natural and rational response to that. So, he says, if you want wisdom, if you want understanding, you start by fearing the Lord, and you know the Lord. And we can know that about the Lord that's been revealed. And we're not talking about Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord, but those things that are revealed belong to us and our children, that we may do all the words of this law. The things about God that have been revealed, we can and we must know. And he says that's wisdom. I like the way Jeremiah puts it in Jeremiah 9, 23 through 24. Turn over there, Jeremiah chapter 9. Verses 23 through 24. What is wisdom? Wisdom starts with the fear of the Lord, and it is the understanding of God. 
true wisdom, the wisdom from above. We're not talking about earthly, sensual, demonic wisdom that's denounced by James in James 3.15. In Jeremiah 9, 23-24, Jeremiah the 9th chapter, verses 23-24, the Bible says, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, let not the mighty man glory in his might, nor let the rich man glory in his riches. Well, what are we supposed to glory in? Verse 24, But let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord, exercising loving, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these I delight, says the Lord. What delights the Lord? Isn't that amazing that, that, that we could do anything <laughs> that delights the Lord? This transcendent God who spoke into existence the entire universe, and the Bible says right here, you know, there is something you can do that absolutely delights this transcendent being of great power and great wisdom and great might. What is that? That you know and you understand me. That's what delights me. In fact, we know 2 Thessalonians 1, 6-9 says, Jesus is coming back with His angels taking fiery vengeance on who? Those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we must know God. And that's the wisdom we're talking about. To understand God. To have this, this attitude, the fear of the Lord. This attitude that I care what the Lord thinks. I care how the Lord feels. Everything. I think Jared had a, a talk recently about this. The idea, I care about what the Lord thinks about how I dress and how I speak and how I think and how I interact with my husband, how I interact with my wife, how I interact with my children, how I interact with my grandchildren, how I interact with my neighbors, how I interact with my coworkers, my supervisor, my supervisees, whatever. The thing on my mind is what pleases my God. That's the fear of the Lord. You're always cognizant of that, always aware of that. Any question that comes up, I'm thinking about, what does God know about this? What is God's will? What does God want? What pleases God or what displeases God? That's wisdom. That's walking in wisdom. Now, is that important? Is it important to get wisdom? Where does wisdom rank in terms of the things we can get in life? Uh, we can get some fancy cars, right? We can get uh, Lamborghinis and Mercedes. I was talking to a brother in Christ recently. He had spent some time over in Dubai. And I was just fascinated. I said, look, tell me, what was it like over there? He says, man, that's just way too much money over there. He said, there's so much money that they drive Mercedes as taxis over there. <laughs> taxis? That's like Toyota Camry or something. I mean, it's not, it's just all kinds of money. So, is that what's important about life? Nice cars or maybe a nice palatial home or maybe having uh, great degrees behind your name, maybe great fame. I mean, what, how does wisdom rank among all of these different things? Well, let's look at some passages on that. Look at Proverbs chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. Proverbs, the third chapter, verses 13 through 18. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. We're asking the question. Once we've established what wisdom is, knowing God, how important is that in the grand scheme of things? Proverbs 3, begin verse 13. The Bible says, Happy is the man who finds wisdom, and the man who gains understanding. Why? For her proceeds are better than the profits of silver, and her gain than fine gold. She is more precious than rubies. And all, listen to this, all the things you may desire 
cannot compare with her. Length of days is in her right hand, and her left riches and honor. Her ways are the ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who take hold of her, and happy are all who retain her. She is more important than any of the things, all the things that you may desire. Go down in the same chapter, verses 21-22. My son, let them not depart from your eyes. Keep sound wisdom and discretion, so they will be life to your soul and grace to your neck. Life to your soul, that's what wisdom is. It's like blood to our physical bodies. It's life to our souls. Our souls are animated by wisdom. They live because of the wisdom. Proverbs chapter 8, verse 11. Proverbs, the 8th chapter, verse 11. How important, where does it rank? How important is wisdom in our lives? How important should it be? Proverbs 8, 11 says, For wisdom is better than rubies. Listen to this. And all the things one may, be, one may desire cannot be compared with her. There's nothing you can compare to wisdom. Not riches, not fame, not wealth, not educational attainment, not popularity, not fame. Nothing can compare to the value of wisdom. And I love the way it's said in Proverbs 4, 7. Look at that. Proverbs 4, 7 says, Wisdom is what? The principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom. And all you're getting, get understanding. Where does it fall in the pecking order? He says, it's the principal thing. You spend your whole life trying to get wisdom. It's worth it. It's something you, like what was said in Proverbs 8, 17. Listen to this. Proverbs 8, 17 says this. I love those who love me and those who seek me. This is wisdom talking. And those who seek me diligently will find me. We seek wisdom diligently. Why? It's the principal thing. It's the important thing. It's life to our souls. It's more important than anything you could desire. Nothing can compare to her. Wisdom is what our life is about finding because you know what? Wisdom is inextricably intertwined with what? Knowing God. We established that earlier, right? It's all about, you cannot be wise and not know God. And you can't know God and not be wise. They're inextricably intertwined. And so now let's ask, ask this question. We've established what wisdom is. We've established how important it is. How do we get it? How do we get the wisdom? First of all, let me suggest we get wisdom from the Scriptures. We get wisdom from the inspired Word of God. Proverbs chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. Proverbs the second chapter, verses 6 through 8. We know what wisdom is. We know it's the principal thing. How do we get wisdom? We want wisdom. We're on this lifelong pursuit of wisdom. How do we get it? From the Scriptures, uh, Proverbs 2, 6 through 8. For the Lord gives wisdom. From His mouth comes knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He's a shield to those who walk uprightly. He guards the paths of justice and preserves the ways of Him. His saints. From His mouth comes knowledge and understanding. The Lord gives wisdom. Where do we find the speeches? Where do we find the words? Where do we find the knowledge that comes from the Lord? Well, the Lord's not speaking to anyone on a personal basis. The Lord speaks in this day, in this time, through His Word. That's how the Lord speaks. It's not visions. It's not one-on-one -on -one conversation. It's through the Bible. You want to know what God has to say? You study His will. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 15. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 15. How do I get this wisdom? I get it from the Scriptures. 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 15. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 15. Paul, by inspiration, tells Timothy the following. 
But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood, listen to this, and that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures. And what could they do? Which are able to make you wise, there's our word, wisdom, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. What does he say? He says, Timothy, you know that you have heard the Word of God. You've heard the inspired Word from your mother and from your grandmother. And these Scriptures that you know, that you've been taught, that you've known even from a child, you know what they do? They make you wise unto salvation in Christ Jesus. And so, if we want wisdom, you know where we're going? We're going to the Scriptures. We're going to the Bible. And we're getting a steady diet of that. And we're not being haphazard about it. We're not doing it every so often. We're not doing it right before we go to bed because we feel guilty. We've done everything else for the Lord, but we want to put a little bit of time in and we fall asleep halfway in the chapter. We're not doing uh, just to avoid embarrassment in the Bible class. And so we hurry up real quick, 10 minutes before we go uh, to church so that we have a little bit of knowledge and don't embarrass ourselves in front of the classes. No, we spend time with God's Word. Quality time. Why? Because that's how we get wisdom. The Scriptures have it. And in fact, look at the very same uh, series of verses, the next uh, couple of verses, verses 16 and 17. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. That's why we spend time with the Scriptures. And it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. The Scriptures are different. The Bible is different. It's not just a book. It's not just something written by some men. It's inspired. It's God-breathed, and we get wisdom from that. Let me give you a second point. A second way that we get wisdom is from the wise counsel of other Christians. Say that again. The second way we get wisdom, this wisdom, that's the principal thing, is through the wise counsel of other Christians. Turn back over to Proverbs verse 1, or chapter 1 and verse 5. Proverbs chapter 1 and verse 5. Now, I recently got a new Bible and there are a lot of wonderful things about a new Bible, but one thing is it's hard to get to your passages. The pages stick together and we'll get past that. Proverbs 1.5, the Bible says, A wise man will hear and increase learning, and a man of understanding will attain wise counsel. A wise man will hear and increase learning, and a wise man will attain wise counsel. A wise person is looking for wisdom from other people. A wise person has to be humble enough to say, you know what, other people have information that I need. Other people have advice and counsel that could help me. Other people can help me navigate the trials and tribulations of life. I was recently uh, watching television. They were talking to Jerry Stackhouse, who's the uh, coach of the Vanderbilt men's uh, basketball team. And they were talking to him a little bit about how he got into college basketball. And he said, look, I'll tell you what I did is I didn't know much about college basketball, so I sought out people who were smarter than I was, who knew more about the game than I did, and surrounded myself with a great staff. And, and that's the secret to my success, is have people who know more. Now, we're not talking about that specifically, but that's the principle, the idea of looking out for other people to provide wise counsel. Now, let me give you a negative example of that. Turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 12, verses 1 through 17. 1 Kings chapter 12, verses 1 through 17. I'll give you a negative. This is what not to do. This is the very opposite of a wise man will attain wise counsel. Now, so that we don't exhaust those new batteries that our brother Mark was so gracious to provide for us tonight, we won't read all that. But you'll remember that story. That's the story of Solomon's passing, and we have Rehoboam, his son. And so they're going to make him king at Shechem. At the same time, you may remember this, Jeroboam was in Egypt. He had fled there because he was afraid of King Solomon. And so the call went out for Jeroboam to come to Shechem. 
And so Jeroboam, on behalf of the people, speaks to Rehoboam and says, hey, look, your father was pretty rough on us. I mean, those taxes were really tough. That tribute was very burdensome. If you'll lighten the load some, if you won't be so difficult, then we will serve you. And so Rehoboam says, I'll tell you what, go away for about three days. Let me think on it. I'll get back to you on that. And so Rehoboam then seeks counsel. And, and you've got to give him credit. The first step he makes is right. He goes to the elders who had served with his father. And in some ways it's kind of interesting what they say because you would think, okay, if they served with Solomon, they're probably going to justify what Solomon did. But what they say is, you know what? The people are right. You need to lighten up. You need to, 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 to lighten the load. And if you do that, these people will serve you forever. Forever. That was the counsel of the elders. And let me say, folks, that was good counsel. That was wise counsel. If, if Proverbs 1.5, if, if, if we had Rehoboam following that, he would have said, let's stop right there. I don't need to go any further. I've got my answer. But you know what? Rehoboam didn't like that answer. And so what did he do? And he rejected that counsel. He said, nah, let me go to my boys, <laughs> the guys I grew up with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What, what do y'all say about this? What should we do? Well, you know how young folks are. Young folks got to prove a point. Yeah, oh, yeah, they thought Solomon was bad. Ha, <laughs> ha, nothing. Your little finger is going to be thicker than Solomon's waist. In other words, they thought it was bad then. They ain't seen nothing yet. And guess whose advice that he went with? Of course, he went with his boys, right? Because, again, he was a novice. He was filled with pride, and he lost the people because of it. So that's the exact opposite. We need to learn to attain wise counsel. And I tell you what, folks, we have it here. We have it here. It makes no sense. I, I think older Christians are some of the most underutilized assets that we have. I mean, the Bible, look at Titus 2, 1 through 6. It talks about the older women teaching the younger women, the older men teaching the younger women men. We need to take advantage of that. You know, Paul got very worked up in 1 Corinthians 6 because you had brethren who were going to law against other brethren. And in verses 5 through 6, he says, so there's not a single wise man among you who can decide this issue? Instead, you go before heathens to get resolution? The expectation is we can get what we need from other Christians. We can learn from one another. I mean, think about with the folks we have here. If you're going through life as a young mother, you've got women who have gone through that. Now, I was going to name some names, but I don't want to be accused of putting any women in the older women category. So, you guys just imagine who the people here are who fall into the category of older women. We do have some. But you can go to her and, and ask. It was interesting. Uh, the other day we had a uh, law firm retreat. And we have an office out in Houston, and that office is very small. We have two male lawyers and one female lawyer. And she was talking about that she uh, had a pregnancy and took off for some time and, and came back and was just struggling. And she said this. She said, you know, I mean, these two males, they're great. They're fine. They had no idea what I was going through. Nothing. They, they can't advise me. And she said, I was so happy when I came to Birmingham, and there were other women who had gone through this, and we could talk about that. You've got that here, Christian women who can help young Christian women get through the difficulties. You have older Christian men that can help you. Uh, how do you balance the demands of your, your career or your work and, and your family? How do you balance that? 
if you're having some difficulties in your marriage, you have people here who have been married for 30, 40, 50 years. Why not tap into that? That's how you get wisdom from other Christians. A wise man will hear and increase learning. A wise man attains wise counsel. But let me give you another point. Another point you get in terms of how you get wisdom, you ask God for it. You ask God for it. You know where I'm going. James chapter 1. Let's turn over there. Verses 5 through 6. You ask God for it. You want some wisdom? God invites us to ask Him for it, and He will give it to us. James 1, 5 through 6, the Bible says this, If any one of you, or any of you, lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally without reproach. It will be given to him, but let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. We ask for wisdom from God, and we do it with faith that He's going to give it. And so we have that. And then the fourth point I give to you about getting wisdom is it simply comes through practice. It simply comes through practice. Look at Hebrews chapter 5, verses 13 through 14. It simply comes through practice. Hebrews 5, 13 through 14. Hebrews, the fifth chapter, verses 13 through 14. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are full age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercise to discern both good and evil. The writer of Hebrews says that there's a distinction between the babe and the veteran. And one of those distinctions is that the veteran has what? Exercised his or her senses to discern good and evil. In other words, they have lived the principles of Christ. And by living it practically, taking on the challenges, making tough decisions, they've learned some things. It's called the school of hard knocks. And we didn't always do it right. <laughs> you can learn. I tell these young lawyers all the time, why do you feel like you need to make all these mistakes yourself? <laughs> learn, learn from mine. Learn from the older guys. We've made a lot of mistakes. He says there's a certain amount of knowledge that comes, an understanding that comes from simply taking the Word of God and applying it practically in life. That's why whenever we hear sermons preached uh, by preachers who are older and have been married and have kids, and there's no disrespect for the single man who preaches about marriage and preaches about kids. I've done it. I did it. You can preach the truth. But there's a level of understanding that's just not there because you hadn't done it yet, right? So I love to hear people who have grown children talk about what it was to raise those children in the training and admonition of the Lord, because they have exercised their senses to discern both good and evil, taking those biblical principles and applying them in a very real situation and coming away with wisdom and understanding. And so, there you go. What is wisdom? The knowledge and understanding of God. How important is it? It's the principal thing. More precious than all the rubies. More precious than anything you could desire. How do we get it? We get it from the Scriptures. We get it from the wise counsel of other Christians. Uh, we get it from asking of God. We, we get it from all these ways, exercising our senses to discern both good and evil. Now, in the time left, it's very limited, I know. But in the time left, I want to talk about a couple of quick applications. The first one I'm going to say, walking towards wisdom, or in wisdom, toward the opposite sex. Walking towards wisdom, uh, walking in wisdom towards the opposite sex. It's interesting if you look at the first eight chapters of Proverbs. In four different occasions, Proverbs 2, 16 through 19, Proverbs 5, uh, 3 through 14, Proverbs 5, 15 through 20, Proverbs 7, 6 through 23, you've got discussion about adultery and warnings about adultery. And we don't have time to read all of that, but let's look at the Proverbs 7 uh, series of passages. A very important thing. Sexual sin is a very powerful thing 
that we need to understand and avoid. I was talking, oh, a few, a couple years ago, I think it was uh, Keith Stonehart and someone else, we were on a Zoom call, and he was saying, isn't it interesting when you look at the list of all the works of the flesh, and there are several of those lists in the New Testament, he had made the observation, isn't it interesting that sexual sin is always at the front of all of those lists? Is that telling us something about how powerful and how difficult it is for us to get this under control? But let's look at Proverbs 7, we'll begin with verse 6. But at the, for at the window of my house, I looked through my lattice and saw among the simple, I perceived among the youths, a young man devoid of understanding, passing along the street near her corner, and he took the path to her house, in the twilight, in the evening, in the black and dark night. And there was a woman, or there a woman met him with the attire of a harlot and a crafty heart. She was loud and rebellious, her feet would not stay at home. At times she was outside, at times in the open square, lurking at every corner. So she called him and kissed him with an impotent face. She said to him, I have peace offerings with me today. I paid my vows. So I came out to meet you, diligently to seek your face. And I have found you, and I have spread my bed with tapestry-colored coverings of Egyptian linen. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love into the morning. Let us delight ourselves with love, for my husband is not at home. He's gone on a long journey. He's taken a bag of money with him, and will come home on the appointed day. With her enticing speech, she caused him to yield, and with her flattering lips, she seduced him. Immediately he went after her as an ox goes to the slaughter, or as a fool to the correction of the stocks, till an arrow struck his liver. As a bird hastens to the snare, he did not know it would cost his life. The thing that strikes me about this is, is the writer says, here's a man that's simple. Here's a man that doesn't understand. Here's a man who lacks wisdom. And where does the lack of wisdom start? He goes down the wrong path. He goes down the wrong path. He goes near her place. That's where it starts. And we know what happens. But I want to focus on this. This idea, don't go down the path. Don't go near the harlot. Don't give the harlot an opportunity. There is much wisdom in that. We need to be careful to cut things off at the pass. Adultery doesn't just happen overnight, folks. It happens gradually. It happens incrementally. Maybe you're having some problems with your wife. You go to work, there's an attractive member of the opposite sex who works with you, a friend, and you begin to talk about your wife and complain about all the bad things that she's doing, all the ways she's neglecting you. And of course, she's going to be in your favor, and she's going to say, oh yeah, she's terrible, and I can't believe she does that. And so you guys talk about that day after day after day, and then you say, well, let's go to lunch together, and you start sharing a lot of things, and you know, next thing you know, something happens. That didn't leap up on you and surprise you. It shouldn't have. Don't go down the path. Don't be like the young man without wisdom, without understanding, who willingly went down, went to her. She didn't come get him. He went to her. He put himself in harm's way. We've got to be careful about this. Have wisdom about this very powerful desire that God has given to all of us. It's very dangerous. We don't play with certain things, right? We don't play with guns. We don't play with fire. And we should not play with sexual desire. I'm not saying anything negative about sexual desire. It, within the confines of marriage, it is appropriate. It is holy. It is wonderful. It gets out of sight of that. It is dangerous. And we need to understand that. I was on a panel discussion recently at, in Atlanta and uh, we were talking to some young men and giving some advice. And one of the young men asked this very question, you know, what do you do with a woman who is in your office and she's scantily clad and she's interested in you and, you know, you can tell she's interested in you and, and what do you do? And the guy right next to me had a great, great, great uh, answer to that. He says, you know what? He says, here's what I do. I set up barriers. And I'll tell you what my barrier is. I start talking about my wife. And I talk about my kids. And I just go on and on about my wife and my kids. And I'm sending her a signal. 
I have no interest in you whatsoever. I love my wife. I love my kids. And that's all we're going to talk about is my wife and my kids because she gets tired of that and goes on. I thought that was, I like the idea of barriers. Now, I'm not saying you've got to employ that particular strategy, but look at the wisdom in that. He's cutting it off at the pass. He's not going down the path as this simple youth who's devoid of understanding does. He is stopping it. Some of the other things that were said, uh, keep the door open. Don't have closed door conversations. Uh, one of the things that I said personally, I said, look, I don't compliment women on anything but their work prowess. That's it. I don't say anything about your appearance, about your hair, about your glasses, what you're wearing. Am I saying that's wrong? No. Well, what am I scared of? I'm scared that if I say anything along those lines, hmm, is he interested? Did you hear what Kevin said? I don't want that. So if you want me to talk about your analysis and your brief writing and your brilliant or argument and how you jumped on uh, those uh, reservations for the hotel, I'm all for it. But beyond that, I'm not saying a word. I'm worried about my influence. I don't want my influence to be cut off. I want the young lady who came to me one time and said, look, I'm about to get married. Will you pray with me? Now, if I'm saying things, as some in the office have said, they're inappropriate, they don't go to those people and ask for prayers. You don't want your influence to be tarnished for Christ. We'll come back to that in just a second. But we need to be very careful. Marriage is honorable among all. I'm not saying that. But fornicators and adulterers, God will judge, Hebrews 13, 4. We just have to be careful, folks. Understand it. Don't play with fire. Can a man take fire into his bosom and not be burned? You know the answer to that. Be careful. I think I heard of a sister that had a rule that said basically she would not go to lunch with just one other man who's not her husband. Break somebody else along. Bring somebody else along. And again, she, she, I don't think she would say that it's necessarily wrong, but she's protecting that marriage. She's protecting her influence. She's concerned about these things. She's not like She's being wise, heading things off at the past. That's what we're saying. Guys, th- this is not rocket science. I mean, this, this is really simple, and yet we fall prey to this over and over again. I think Bob and I were talking about how many men, and I hate to say it, but how many men have fallen prey to this? Time and time again. And you would think that the story is so well worn and we know how it turns out. You would understand you can't get away with that. And people say, well, I'll be the one. Somehow I'll get it done. And don't tell me that it's just out in the world because it happens in the Lord's church. And you know it does if you've been around. We've got to be careful. Wisdom. We've got to protect ourselves. Walk in wisdom toward the opposite sex. Second point, lesson be yours. Walk in wisdom towards alcohol. Walk in wisdom towards alcohol. Now, let me say what this is not, and obviously I don't have time to do a thorough workup and all the references to wine and all the different uh, debates about what is meant, is it fermented, is it unfermented, and all those sorts of things. But let's go back to the beginning. We're talking about walking in wisdom. Not just what can we do, but what should we do. Now, let's read a few passages and keep that in mind. What should we do? Proverbs 20 and 1, 20, chapter 20, verse 1. Walking in wisdom towards alcohol. Walking in wisdom towards alcohol. Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 1. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 1. The Bible says, Wine is a mocker, strong drink is a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. There's our word. Turn over now to Proverbs chapter 23, verses 29 through 35. Proverbs the 23rd chapter, verses 29 through 35. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has contentions? Who has complaints? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who linger long at the wine, 
Those who go in search of mixed wine, do not look at the wine when it's red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it swirls around smoothly. At the last it bites like a serpent and stings like a viper. Your eyes will see strange things. Your heart will utter perverse things. Yes, you will be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea, or like one who lies at the top of the mast, saying, They have struck me, but I was not hurt. They have beaten me, but I did not feel it. When shall I wait that I may seek another drink? And then one last verse, or series of verses, Proverbs 31 Verses 40, uh, 4 through 7. Proverbs, the 31st chapter, verses 4 through 7. Listen to what is said by the mother of Lemuel. It is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine, nor for princes intoxicating drink, lest they drink and forget the law and pervert the justice of all the afflicted. Give strong drink to him who is perishing, and wine to those who are bitter of heart. Let him drink and forget his poverty, and remember his misery no more. Did you see or hear any warnings in those passages that we read from God Almighty? I certainly did. He told us that wine is a mocker, wine is a brawler. He said the person who's led astray by it is not wise. He talked about who has woes, who has contentions, who has red eyes, who has wounds without cause. I think I've told some of you, I literally saw that happen not terribly long ago. I went to a, a witness's house and we were trying to get him ready for a deposition and um, he was an alcoholic. Let's just be honest and call it like it is. And I didn't go at night. Went in the daytime, in the afternoon, early afternoon. And I'm talking with him, and I'm talking, and finally we wrap up our session, and he walks me out of his trailer. We go to his uh, truck, and we're just sitting there talking. I'm getting ready to leave, and all of a sudden he just falls. And as he's falling, his arm hits the truck. He ends up cutting himself pretty severely, and he's bleeding. So I got this man who just fell out and has cut his... How, why, why did he get that wound? Wounds without cause, because he was drunk. He was sloppy drunk. I had to help him get up off the ground, and then finally he started trying to tend to himself because he'd cut himself. This is what alcohol does. It makes a mockery of us. It, 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 it inhibits our judgment. It impairs our judgment. I thought it was interesting in Proverbs 31, 4 through 7, here's the mother of a king that says, you know what? For you, son, you're a king. It's not for kings to drink strong drink. You don't do that. Why? Because it's going to mess up your mind. You need to have a clear mind so that you can apply the law accurately and fairly and equally. And it's going to impair your judgment, your ability to understand and dispense judgment. Now, see, here's what we're being asked this question. Is it wise to consume alcohol? We, we can have a lot of discussion because somebody's going to say, well, give me the specific verse that says, in no circumstances can you ever take alcohol. I'm not going to give you that because 1 Timothy 5.23, Paul told Timothy to drink wine, a little wine, for his stomach's sake. I know that verse. I'm, I'm, I'm aware of that. But you know what's interesting about that verse? He starts out saying, no longer drink only water. Thought about that for a second? What was Timothy doing before Paul gave that inspired instruction? Well, if you say no longer drink water, you were drinking only water, right? I mean, I don't have to be an English grammarian to get that right. I wonder why. Why was he only drinking water? Well, let's see. Back there in 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 15, it said that he had been raised in the Scriptures, in the Holy Scriptures. So he would have known uh, Proverbs 31, 4 through 7. And he would have known Proverbs 23, 29 through 35. And he would have known Proverbs 29. Do you reckon that any of those warnings, and there are many, many more. We just touched the, 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 the edge of the, the curtain on this one. Do you reckon that had anything to do with the fact that he only drank water? Somebody may say, well, you know, maybe he only drank water for 
medicinal purposes. Okay, let, let's go with that. So it was some medicine thing. You had some allergy to, to the fruit of, of, of the of vine. Then why would the Holy Spirit tell Paul to tell him to drink some alcohol? Because it's going to hurt him. No, it's not. I mean, I, 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 I'd be curious what you said. I can't come up with any explanation other than I think Timothy knew what the Lord said about wine. And he had decided, I'm not going to take any chances with this. I think this is the wise course of action to stay away from it. And it was Paul who had to say, you know what? That's fine, but at least you can use it for medicinal purposes. For those people that want to lobby for the right to drink wine, let me, let me challenge you with some things. Again, not just can I do it, but should I do it? So you're going to drink this substance when you have all kinds of options. I mean, here we're in the South. You don't like sweet tea? I love sweet tea. You, that's, you stop right there. We don't need to go any further. Kool-Aid? Soda pop? I don't know the doctors will get on to me here. But all that stuff. But all these different drinks we have. You have all this wife. You just don't want it. Just regular water like Timothy. Man, you put some flavored water. Any flavor you want. You got it. All these different options. But you know, there's something about alcohol that's different. Alcohol has the potential to harm your body, does it not? I mean, the last time I checked, when I go to the doctor's office, they don't say, now when's the last time you had some sweet tea or Kool-Aid? But they do talk about, have you had any alcohol? Do you drink wine? How often? I wonder why that is. Something has, has something to do with the body. The effect on the body. Ever heard of liver disease? It can destroy the body. But let me give you another thought. How do you know before you take that first drink that you're not an alcoholic in waiting? You may be an alcoholic in waiting. You take that first drink and you're hooked for life. How do you know that? You don't know that. So don't take the first drink. You never have to worry about that. But let me throw this at you. What about your influence? What about your influence? And I'm not just talking about members of the church or the body of Christ. Do you know there are people in denominations? I've got a book at home right now. And this is a Baptist preacher. And he takes the position that he can prove from the Bible you can't drink any alcohol with the exception possibly of 1 Timothy 5.23. And he's still wavering on whether that's fermented or unfermented wine. He's, he's wavering on that. So you've got some Baptists that believe you shouldn't drink. So here you come with the truth and you're going to preach and teach and they find out that you're drinking, that you think it's all right to drink alcohol and they don't. What kind of influence do you think you're going to have on that person? <laughs> Not very much. Is that a good thing? That's a bad thing. I think it's so funny to me. If we understood that we're all in the soul winning business, it takes care of a lot of things. We don't have to talk about modesty. <laughs> it takes care of itself. Are you in the soul winning business? It takes care of itself. When I go into court, a courthouse and I'm going to make an argument to a jury, I dress conservatively. There's not going to be any banana yellow suits. They're going to be, and, and I've seen lawyers wear that. There are no baby blue suits, no loud jazzy ties. No, I don't go in there representing University of Tennessee. Why? Because there could be some Alabama fans on that jury, and I want their vote too. I dress down. We're so worried. We're in the persuasion business. I mean, back in the day when cell phones first came out, we had a rule. We couldn't even use a cell phone in the courthouse because a juror might see that and think, oh, look at them. Oh, got a cell phone. Now, we've had to tell the older guys, everybody's got a cell phone now. But, you know. But the point is, when you're in the persuasion business, you give up a lot of liberties. You don't want any distractions. I want the vote of every single person. I had to uh, tell some of my folks sometime, they were, it was a chemical uh, exposure case, and somebody wanted to talk about millions and millions of years. I said, well, you know, there's some of us that don't believe that <laughs> millions and millions of years are right. So take that out. That doesn't add anything anyway. That's a distraction, right? 
So we're so concerned, and all we're dealing with is money. <laughs> That's all we're dealing with. But we think about everything. Our ties, our shirts, if you're a woman, do I wear makeup, not wake up? Do I wear heels, not heels? Do I wear jewelry, not jewelry? All these things you're thinking about just because you don't want to turn off anybody who's hearing your message. What do we do as Christians? <laughs> oh, we don't care. I'll wear anything, I'll say anything, I'll do anything, but the gospel's going to get through. Well, the gospel is powerful, but you can get in the way of the gospel. That's why Paul told Timothy, take heed unto yourself and unto the doctrine. Because a lot of times we as human beings do what? We judge the message by the messenger. If I don't like you, I have a hard time listening to your message. That's true. I've seen it in myself. I'll be like, Kevin, you shouldn't feel it. I don't like that guy, so I'm going to find something wrong with his message. I mean, that's what we do, right? So if I'm in the soul winning business, and I know there are people out there who do not drink alcohol, who think it's wrong to drink alcohol, why would I drink alcohol? Do I really need to? And do I want to defend losing credibility with my audience when I go to Judgment Day and I stand before Jesus who gave up everything to seek and save that which is lost? Do I want to defend my right, as you think it is, my right to drink alcohol? Should you drink alcohol? No. I don't drink alcohol. I don't think a Christian should. I think you can make the case just from the things we've said by here, from a standpoint of wisdom. You don't need to. Somebody says, well, I have to because people in my workplace, they drink, and we have so many drinking functions, and if you don't drink, you're not going to be successful, and you can't stay employed. And No, that's not true. First of all, even if it was true, it doesn't matter. <laughs> if it's not wise and you shouldn't do it, boom, who cares? But it's not true. I know a lot of Christians, and quite frankly non-Christians, who don't drink, and they're able to provide for their families. I haven't had any problem. Everybody knows I don't drink. They, they make fun of me all the time. At my firm retreat, they had a drink. I didn't make it to the firm retreat this weekend. They had a drink. They were naming drinks after different people. And they called this the Kevin. And it was just a big tub of water. And, and they called it holy water. And they had a silhouette of a man preaching. And they called it the Kevin. Okay, yeah, that's funny. I, I, I got it. I got it. That's not persecution. I, you know, yeah, yeah, the first century Christians wouldn't say, yeah, look at old Kevin. He had to take one on the chin. Uh-uh. I didn't lose any liberty. Didn't lose any life. Didn't lose any property. Lose a little bit of face. That's okay. But you can make it. You don't have to take a stand. It's not a big deal. I, I understand. You know what my clients care about? What kind of services I provide. I don't care whether I get drunk with them and that sort of thing. What they care about is, can you provide quality services? And that's what I try to do. And you don't have to drink to do it. It's not necessary. Wisdom, not can I do it. We, what we do is we, we, we go through life and we're trying to see how close can we get to the edge without falling off. That's not the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is Joseph fleeing, run, get away, don't even get close to it. Why do you want to get close to the line? That's why young people are. Unless I find a specific verse that tells me not to. I used to be that way. That's foolishness. It's foolishness. Listen to older folks. Listen to how much heartbreak has been caused by alcohol. And let me tell you, don't, don't say, well, you can drink just a little bit and it won't have any impact. I'll tell you otherwise. I had a case, I may have talked about this, I had a case where there was a gentleman who got drunk, but he's able to hold his alcohol. And so he gets on I-459 and he's going down to Tuscaloosa. And he comes around exit 104, and it's late at night. Well, it's actually early in the morning, 4 o'clock, but it's dark. There are two cop cars on the side 
Lights are flashing. And he notices, he's in the middle lane, he notices that the trucks, two 18-wheelers, are slowing down, and he just zips in between them. And then finally, too late, he recognizes there's debris in the road. That's why there was a slowing down of the trucks. That's why there were two cop cars on the side with their lights flashing to get people's attention. Slow down, slow down. And the truck driver testified that this gentleman, as he's coming up on the debris, slows down and just slowly pulls right into the path of the 18-wheeler and absolutely, brutally kills him. I mean, that's a, that's a picture I'm never going to forget what an 18-wheeler can do to a man's head. That was because of alcohol. And the testimony was that it doesn't take much to impair your judgment. It doesn't take much. Even if you don't get to the legal limit, you're impaired. Your judgment's not what it's to be. Your timing is not. Your reflexes are not that. That's why every time I get on a plane, one of my prayers is, Lord, let those pilots not be impaired by alcohol, recreational, prescription drugs, or anything else that will cloud their judgment or slow their reflexes. Because that's the last place I want somebody who's impaired. Now think about this. I don't know about you. When I am completely on top of my game, I have a hard time fighting the devil. He's good at what he does. Why would I handicap myself with something that's going to slow me down and lower inhibitions? And you know that's true. I mean, I listen to people work, and it's not the taste, folks. It's not the taste. It's mind-altering, and they want that. They're funnier when they drink alcohol. They're bolder when they drink alcohol. They call it liquid courage. They're funnier when they drink alcohol, so they think. It's not because of the taste. They want the altered state of consciousness. Do you want an altered state of consciousness going against a being like the devil who is just waiting to trip you up? I don't think so. Wisdom, not what can we do, what should we do. Well, we don't have enough time. We've run out of time. I thank you for your patience. But I want you to go back to that statement at the very beginning of the sermon that your scientists were so preoccupied with whether they could, they didn't think whether they should. We need to think whether we should. And we need to answer that question in the fear of the Lord, having respect and reverence and love for God Almighty. Because we're trying to get to heaven. And all the sacrifices we make, all the things that we give up, all the things, the liberties we don't exercise, nobody in heaven is going to be worried about that. Nobody's going to say, boy, I wish I'd done more of this. We need to be careful. Walk in wisdom. Go to the Lord. Go to Him in prayer. Go to His scriptures. Go to His people. Exercise your senses to discern good and evil. Find that principal thing. The most important thing is to have wisdom. Know the Lord God Almighty and orient your whole life towards pleasing Him. And let me tell you, folks, if we do that, that is fulfilling. One last point for you, and the lesson is yours. 1 Timothy 4 8 says that godliness has the promise of the life that now is and the life that is to come. And what that says is, yes, we have a heavenly home waiting for us. It's wonderful. It'll surpass all of our imaginations. But what he also said is the best life to be lived is the life that's lived in accordance with God's principles here. If, yeah, I didn't say a life without heartache. I didn't say a life without difficulty. I didn't say a life without illness. I didn't say a life without death. But I said the best life to be lived is the life that's laid out in the inspired Word of the Bible. You know why? Because God knows best. And He laid it out. And we just follow that. We'll have the most fulfilling life we can have in this life in this side of the grave. If you're not a Christian, we want to encourage you to become one. Obey the gospel of Jesus Christ today before it's everlasting too late. If the Lord were to come back tonight and you are not in Christ, you are lost for all eternity. Let that sink in. I don't say that with any meanness in my heart. If I'm not baptized into Christ, 
I'm lost for all eternity if the Lord comes back. But here's the good news. Here's the silver lining. You don't have to go to hell. Nobody has to go to hell. Because Jesus Christ died on the cross. And because He died on the cross, we can obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. You say, what does it mean to obey the gospel? I want to do that. I want to have that salvation. You've got to hear the, the message, the gospel, the good news. You've got to believe the message, the good news. That faith that comes from hearing the good news is going to motivate you to confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That faith that comes from the good news is going to motivate you to repent of your former way of life. And yes, that faith that comes from the good news is going to motivate you and compel you to be baptized for remission of your sins. And that's not sprinkling, that's not pouring, and I don't care what Barton W. Stone said, I don't care about Alexander Campbell, Thomas Campbell, all fine folks. I care about what the Bible says. To be biblically baptized is to be immersed. With Him in baptism, you contact the blood of Jesus Christ that washes away all your sins. And then you come up of that watery grave, a new creature in Christ, and you are part of His, you're in His family, and you start the greatest work on this side of the grave, which is to seek and to save that which is lost, Luke 19.10. And friends, that's available to everybody. If you're a Christian and you've fallen away, if you're a Christian and you want the prayers of the congregation, now is a wonderful opportunity to ask for that. If anyone is subject to the invitation, we ask you to come forward as we stand and as we sing. There is no one